we're going to go from a focus on efficiency for current, essentially peacetime, low-intensity conflict types of operations to focus on being ready for something much more severe and much more dramatic than that. So we're going to be putting together teams to look at several areas. They include how we're organized, um, how we train, how our personnel system is managed, how we equip the force, how we create and sustain readiness, and how we support the force. Those are the basic five areas we're going to look at. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is a special edition of the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. We met yesterday with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall just before he issued a service-wide letter disclosing his plan to revamp how the Air Force trains, equips, and is organized to improve its ability to deter and, if necessary, fight and win wars with great powers like China and Russia. He's urging every airman to consider changes that need to be adopted across the force and wants to craft a plan for execution in January 2024. The 26th Air Force Secretary's drive for greater urgency in driving change and driving it faster is going to be one of the central messages that he and his team are going to be delivering at the Air Force Association's flagship airspace cyber conference and trade show next week. Because of the newsworthy nature of his comments, we're releasing the Air Power podcast one day earlier than normal. Tune in tomorrow for my conversation with Rasmus Hindren of the European Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats. And look at this week's news. And it's all powered by GE Aerospace. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace obviously sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Air Systems is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's upcoming airspace cyber conference and trade show. And JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? We're keeping it a tight list today to get to the secretary, but a few things pop out that are really worthy of comment. One, the United States Navy did something the United States Air Force would not do and has named the contractors who are working on its sixth generation aircraft. Iran, which is used to flying obsolete Western types of aircraft, has now taken delivery of its first two modern Russian planes, moving them into an entirely new era. And the United States Air Force is planning more bases in the Pacific, but there are a lot of ifs attached to that. Vago? You know, as we discussed on Sunday's podcast, I think it's fascinating the difference between how the Air Force, right? Not to give too much away from the interview that we conducted with Secretary Kendall, but I think you kind of pressed him on this a little bit. And he appears to be very comfortable not disclosing anything about the next generation air dominance program. Whereas it's interesting that the Navy has just sort of put this out in terms of uh, what it's going to do. I don't know. I mean, you've covered this as long as anybody has. I mean, what do you see as the differences? What do you see as the merits? I mean, when Secretary Kendall was the undersecretary, 
Secretary for Acquisition and the B-21 contract was issued, aside from saying that it was going to be Northrop Grumman building the airplane, nothing else was disclosed at the time. I think he explained that they were trying to improve the cyber hardening uh, of the companies involved to make sure that we were better safeguarding our data, right? His point is, why let the adversary know what we're doing? Uh, although, you know, that was controversial by some who, you know, obviously reporters wanted to know, but you can also understand that, you know, that's one of the Air Force's most important programs. And now NGAD is one of its most important programs. What's your sense on sort of the merits of secrecy in this case? Well, first, when they announced the B-21 program, on day one, they announced Northrop. It was very shortly thereafter that they came out with a list of the six biggest other contractors on the program, a very small amount of time compared to how long NGAD and FAXX have already been going on. So there was more information given out there. And I'm wondering whether, frankly, the increased security on NGAD comes from a bad experience that may have flowed out of that B-21 announcement. But look, the Navy isn't really telling us very much. They're saying that the main competitors are Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop. Really, anybody could have guessed that. It's not giving right. the Chinese a big head start and saying, oh, wait, we should start trying to penetrate Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop. They already do that every day. So, right. yes, the Navy is taking a slightly different approach. I'm not sure it's a distinction with a real difference. You were uh, actually there. I, I know that we found out about it and then I think got it out first that Northrop had been uh, the winner of the contract. And I recall that gap being somewhat longer uh, and a lot of debate going on about, you know, why aren't you releasing this? And I do remember at the time, Secretary Kendall repeatedly saying, hey, um, you know, we, we don't want to give anybody uh, any advantage here. And to your point, uh, JJ, right. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist that for both of these competitions, whether it was NGAD or whether uh, it was FAXX, that these are the three you know, three companies, three groups that are going to be pursuing this, obviously each with their own uh, subcontractor train. And I do think that we moved uh, the ball forward a little bit in uh, reporting during the Paris Air Show that there were three demonstrators and it had been down selected to two. And, you know, Northrop's subsequent announcement would make it seem as though it was not one of the two. And so it decided to tell everybody, We've decided again, you know, I don't know if they so much decided not to pursue it or maybe that they just did not make that cut, unfortunately, and, you know, decided to go in another direction. Apparently, it's highly classified to tell someone that you're part of the program, but it's not classified at all to tell someone you're not. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, although uh, it's, it's safe to say that Northrop does have a bunch of really interesting things that they are doing uh, and obviously have B-21 and are, are working hard to try to execute that, which is another core and foundational programs. And the, and the company does have a very good track record uh, of making naval aircraft, obviously, through the Grumman side of the Northrop Grumman uh, family, the legendary ironworks, even if things are not rolling off the assembly line, either in uh, Bethpage or Calverton, as much as that distresses me. Really quickly, Iran and uh, Russian aircraft. Why is that necessarily so interesting, as, aside from the fact that they do continue to operate F-4 Phantoms and F-14s, the last well, F-14 operator on the planet, and it's, a great it, plot point in Maverick Top Gun? It's interesting from an air geek point of view, simply because that they are replacing F-5s that they are continuing to do training with. But look, for a long time, there was an arms embargo on Iran. This is the first major transaction since that embargo went away. It's not too surprising that they didn't turn to the West for aircraft, but anytime there's an alliance between Iran and Russia, it's worth watching. 
The, Indeed, especially so, with the Shahed's, right? That, uh, you know, the Iranians are giving the Russians the capability to do long range strike in Ukraine. Yes. So far, it's limited to two Yak 130s that we know have been delivered to Iran. But watch this space for what comes next. It is going to be interesting. And, and you're absolutely right, right? Iran is not going to be able to turn to, you know, whether it's uh, to Italy or, you know, the Czechs or anybody else, Poles, uh, you know, in order to get those aircraft or even the Koreans to get those aircraft needs under under their belt. And I should well, say the Shahed is one part of the kind of arsenal and equipment that uh, the Iranians are are sending to the Russians, supplementing the Russian deep strike capability they have on their own. And they sort of have gone to the West in a way, because you'll remember the Yak-130 was a joint development between Yak, Yakovlev and Ermaki in Italy. It's Western-ish. Uh, it is. And the 346 and the, the Yak do share uh, a lot of similarities because one is the Italian version of that airplane and the other one is the Russian uh, version of that airplane. Ah, at a time when Silvio Berlusconi used to say the future of Italian aerospace is in Russia, one of the bigger strategic business missteps. <laughs> Pacific basing, just really quickly, kind of give us a, a, a sense on this, and we'll know a little bit more next week, but the Air Force is planning more Pacific bases. That's not necessarily new. The senior leadership has been talking about this uh, for some time and indeed been doing base hopping operations where uh, large numbers of aircraft, and in fact, in the large mobility guardian exercise, that was demonstrated where Air Force tankers and transports, uh, along with some combat aircraft, were maneuvering and operating from bases, you know, a large number of nations. We talked to the French contribution to that mission uh, with eight Rafale jets, uh, as I recall. They were hopscotching across uh, the Pacific as part of this. Talk to us about what we know about uh, more bases and, as you put it, with some ifs. Well, the ifs are significant. At the Mitchell Institute this week, the head of Air Force Logistics started talking about the future of basing and very specifically called out the Pacific as a place where the Air Force intends to develop more bases if suitable places can be found and if money is found. So this is in some ways the opening shot of the 25 budget drop saying, look, we've got this idea. This is something we want to do. Get ready to pay for it. The, do we know how much money it's going to cost in order to be able to establish more bases? Because some of these facilities waiting for us to occupy them as opposed to sort of fully occupied, right? I mean, these are not Hickam's that we're setting up. These are smaller bases in a variety of different places with much smaller numbers of people well, uh, to sort of that, keep them warm and ready to to use in a, in a conflict. That's what they're still figuring out is what those bases should look like, where they should be. And frankly, some of the answer to that is going to depend on how much money they get. The Air Force would not at all mind having another major operating base in the Pacific as a counterpart to Guam, but that's not the current plan. But all this is just a signal to Congress, particularly, to watch out because we have a strategic plan and it's going to need funding. And do we know how much funding? We don't because they don't know what the bases are yet. It's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, but we've seen this before where the Air Force, particularly around the time of an AFA convention, signals some new strategic direction that is going to need funding with details to be filled in later. Uh, indeed. 
And with that, JJ and I had an extraordinary conversation with Secretary Kendall on his plan and continuing drive to change the Air Force and adapt it to its new realities. And for those of you who are wondering, we are going to save analysis of Secretary Kendall's comments, including his uh, impassioned statements regarding Senator Tommy Tuberville's hold on military promotions until next week, not to prejudice your view of the conversation. Here is our conversation with Secretary Kendall. Mr. Secretary, sir, it's an honor and pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. Always good to be with you. I want to uh, start off, uh, as we were preparing for this, one of the uh, questions we were going to ask you were the messages you're going to deliver next week uh, at the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show, which is really the annual flagship event for the uh, United States Air and Space Forces. As we record this on uh, the morning of uh, September the 5th, you released an extraordinary letter in which you urge the force to help contribute to a process that you hope to complete by January, which is a redesign of the force on how you train, equip, prepare, and are organized effectively. You want airmen to be focused on it. You want every airman to be thinking through uh, what are the changes that are going to be required and feed it through their chain of command. From your standpoint, what is it that needs to change? And you have put this out in your operational imperatives and been driving speed the entire time, the entire two years you've been in office now. What is it you want this to accomplish? And what are the changes that you think are most pressing that have to be made? Thanks, Vago. The intent here is to accelerate change, to ensure that we're in the best posture we possibly can be. And for my first two years in office, I focused largely on modernization, getting to the next generation of uh, weapon systems and supporting equipment and so on that we're going to need for the pacing challenge, China. As I've gone through that journey and working closely with the service chiefs, it's become apparent that we need to make some changes in the force that we currently have. What's happened is we've had about a 30-year period of being basically the dominant military power, being focused on supporting counter-violent extremists and counterinsurgencies, uh, and doing certain types of deployments and certain types of operational environment. And we've gotten to some degree operationally optimized to do that and to be as efficient about that as we can. That's not the posture we need given the pacing challenge, given the threat that China potentially poses, or Russia for that matter. So again, I bring my Cold War experience, my 20 years of Cold War experience to bear. Uh, we've got to get back to thinking about the potential for great power conflict and what it means to be prepared for that. So we're going to be looking across the uh, how we organize, train, and equip the Department of the Air Force, the Space Force, and the Air Force, uh, all aspects of that, to see what changes we need to make within the context of the current force. We're going to go from a focus on efficiency for current, essentially peacetime, low-intensity conflict types of operations to focus on being ready for something much more severe and much more dramatic than that. Are there things in particular that you think are most pressing, right, as you're prioritizing this? What are the things that really have to change? But right off the top, what are the things that have to change? And how hard do you think or how easy do you think it is going to be for you to get support for those changes? Because even when you try to sunset one squadron somewhere, it literally becomes a federal case. Yeah, I think we'll have widespread support for this. I think it's an, as you get into it, the need becomes more obvious. What initially set me down this path was recognizing that for all the operational imperative work that we did, we had to create ad hoc teams to do that analysis and to address those problems. 
as we got into that, we created the uh, Integrating PEO Program Executive Officer for C3 Battle Management because we didn't have an organization that was set up to do that function. As we recognized that we need to work on cross-cutting operational enablers, electronic warfare, uh, munitions, uh, counter C4ISR, we realized we didn't have good existing organizations, centers of excellence, if you will, to address those problems. And then as I traveled around and visited our units all over the Air Force and talked to the service chiefs again, it's clear that we are supporting deployments today in a way which simply would not work if we were called upon to support a major operational plan. So while we have very capable warfighting units, and no one should doubt our, our capacity or our capability, we aren't optimized for the type of thing we might be asked to do at any time. And this isn't a future problem, it's a current problem, uh, and it's going to endure. So we need to reorient the force, if you will, both at the headquarters and out in the major commands and so on, towards the type of conflict that we might be called upon to enter into at any time. In your first two years, your message has been very consistent, faster, faster, faster. This letter and some of the other work you're doing is setting where you're going from here, but let's look at those two years. What's happened between when you came into the building and now that is laying the groundwork for this? What's been successful and what would you like to have back? I think a lot of things are happening within the force, and I'll point to a couple. General Saltzman on the Space Force side has been talking about enduring competitiveness, uh, which is what we need to be focused on. General Brown has talked about these initially accelerate change or lose, more recently integrated by design. Uh, as I've visited forces, I've seen training changing, including in basic military training and on up to be more focused on the pacing challenge. My focus particularly has been modernization and moving forward as quickly as possible on the next generation of capabilities. Uh, making JADC squared real, you know the list, the list of operational uh, imperatives, basically. So we've made progress on that. I'm frustrated that we're waiting for budget uh, in order to implement some of the things. A year ago, we had identified what we needed to do. We put it into our program objective memorandum for review by the Secretary of Defense's office, and then we went through several months of getting that up to the Hill in the president's budget. And now we're waiting for the Congress to act. So that's been a frustration, but at least we're moving in the right direction. We've identified what we need to do, and in some cases, we've been able to use some existing resources to get started. So as, as frustrated I am with the pace at which we, we appropriate funds and so on and allow new starts to occur, we're at least moving in the right direction. The other things that I've become aware of more over time uh, that I mentioned earlier are more about the current state of the force and what we need to do right now to accelerate, again, some of the changes that are already in a way underway up to a point, but which we need to take a hard look at. And I think make, frankly, more significant changes than we've contemplated so far. I think the way we have allocated functions out to the major commands, how the headquarters is um, organized to do some of the things that we've been working on and others needs to be revisited. So we're going to be putting together teams to look at several areas. They include how we're organized, um, how we train, how our personnel system is managed, how we equip the force, how we create and sustain readiness, and how we support the force. Those are the basic five areas we're going to look at. And we're going to be doing that over the next few months. And I expect that there'll be a number of decisions made as we go through that process. And then we'll get on with implementing them as quickly as we can.
You are uh, in the midst of a generational modernization of the force. You're trying to now make the organizational changes to step up that high-intensity warfighting skill set in the event that deterrence fails, right? Dictators always miscalculate. We saw that, obviously, Russia and Ukraine. And yet, in the midst of this, your budgetary situation, as you mentioned, is completely uncertain. You could be living with continuing resolutions. You're looking at a potential government shutdown later this year. And you and uh, your Navy counterpart, Secretary Del Toro, and your Army counterpart, Secretary Warmoth wrote a very, very powerful op-ed in the Washington Post that ran on uh, Labor Day itself, right, yesterday, where you made the case that it's utterly devastating not to have those 300 uh, senior officers who are apolitical either promoted or shifted to new jobs, right? Uh, General Kelly at Air Combat Command was supposed to have retired in June and been replaced by General uh, Wilsbach, the Pacific Air Force's commander, and they're both in, in limbo. That's just a microcosm. What evidence do you have that any of these messages are actually penetrating? Because the magnitude of what people are trying to accomplish and you're trying to accomplish should be self-evident that it should draw support. And yet, here you find yourself. Are any of these arguments working? And if they're not working, how are you indemnifying and what's the way forward to operate and succeed despite these hurdles? Because you and I have been having this conversation now for fiscal stupidity for the last 15 years. What Senator Tuberville is doing is really, um, I think, quite frankly, a disgrace. Um, it's having significant damage to our readiness, to our ability to do our jobs, to, to national security. In the op-ed that you mentioned, too, we laid out a lot of these things in, in more detail. It's also having a big impact on people who have served their country honorably and professionally for decades and their families and all the people who are following in line with them as we make changes in people in leadership in positions. We are a very resilient and capable military, and militaries are designed to absorb losses and continue to function. But what's happening in this case is that in the limbo that's created, when you have an incoming leader who, who's not yet confirmed, and you have a temporary leader, is that people can't do any major initiatives. It uh, doesn't make sense for someone who's likely to be there temporarily to set a new direction and to provide the kind of long-term leadership we need. Um, it's also putting many people in two jobs who should be doing one, and these are big jobs. These are not small jobs we're talking about. It sends a very negative message to everybody in the force about the functionality of the Congress and, and whether it cares about our military or not. So there are a whole host of devastating impacts here, and they accumulate over time. You mentioned a couple of specific instances. We have people who you know, are, have quarters that are no longer have any furniture in them that are sleeping on a mattress on the floor as four-star generals. It just, it, it's embarrassing to me that we have to do that. Um, there are a number of impacts like that. We have people who can't put their kids into school because they don't have, they don't have residence in a place where they're supposed to be living for the next few years. This needs to end, and I think my, my counterparts and I feel this more strongly than, than your average person does because we work with all these people every day. We see the, the impact on them, and we see the implications it has for them. These are people who serve their country with loyalty and professionalism for decades, and they're be treating in a very disrespectful way by Senator Tuberville. And if we can't get Senator Tuberville out of the way, we need to find some other way to change this so that we can put those people in the jobs that they've been selected for and are highly qualified for. It's a disgrace to me. And by the way, China is watching this. China is looking at this. I had an incident last week where one of my senior people who was waiting for a position uh, had a brief conversation with a Chinese attache from the People's Liberation Army here in D.C., who basically made a sarcastic and mocking remark about the dysfunction in our government. 
And unfortunately, there is dysfunction in our government. It needs to end. Sorry, I'm pretty passionate about this one, Vago. It's, uh, uh, it's totally unnecessary. And the policy change this individual is interested in, it's not going to be affected by this. So he's wasting his time on that regard. And an individual senator cannot use holding hostages 300-plus military officers as a way to get a policy issue he wants. That's just not appropriate. Um, I, I should also point out, right, you're a West Point graduate. Everything about the military is competitive. And so if you're the colonel or a one star, do you want to actually go through this and face that kind of future where, you know, it's, it's just dis disrupting the normal competitive process uh, for jobs and the like? Let me ask you, because, uh, oh, go ahead. We have had people say that they're going to retire because they're fed up and that they've had enough of this. Even though they were viable candidates for a promotion to general officer, they're just not interested anymore. And it's because they're seeing how general officers are being treated by, by this individual. Um, let me uh, ask you on the financial side of things. How do you indemnify yourself and how are you planning? Because whether you like it or not or whether it should be normal or not, it will be abnormal. And you may be looking at a government shutdown. If you're lucky, it's seven to ten days and not as damaging. Uh, I can't believe we're saying it, but it's not as damaging as opposed to something even more prolonged uh, or, you know, a full year CR. What are the things that you guys are doing right now to protect yourselves? Because you have so many priority of, uh, efforts, whether they're in the black or the white world or the gray world, that all get disrupted at the end of this. There's not much, well, there's, there's not a great deal we can do. I've been through shutdowns. I've been through shutdowns that went on for over a week. A lot of bad things happen, and it accumulates very quickly. Uh, factories, for example, that need government inspectors in them in order to function come to a halt and people get laid off. So there's a big impact there. Um, it's demoralizing to everyone involved, military and civilian. It forces us to pick a small number of people that continue to work because of safety and, and mission essential needs. It's no way to run a government. It's another example of, of dysfunction. And what we end up doing is we have to cut things uh, as a result of this that we need to do. We have to cut training. There are all sorts of things that we cannot continue to spend money on. It's enormously disruptive. It's disruptive across the board of the military. There's nothing good about it, and there's no way really to completely minimize or prevent that kind of damage. It's, um, again, an embarrassment to the country when this sort of things happen, when we can't function uh, as an effective government because of whatever difficulty we're having on the Hill. Let's look ahead a little bit to something perhaps a bit more pleasant. The AFA convention is coming. It brings together a lot of different communities, current and retired airmen, but it's especially a place where industry and the service interact. Your operational imperatives have been out for a long time. They haven't changed. Air Force Futures has been very public about some of its ideas for how the Air Force needs to operate in the future. Has industry been responding to those cues and giving you new options to work with, or are they waiting for specific funded programs and line items before they move out? Uh, industry has been responsive, and we've tried to be very clear about our intent. Uh, one of the things I don't like to do is m mislead industry about where we're going to make investments, where we're going to be acquiring things, and for what requirements. And the, one of the main examples here is the uh, uncrewed collaborative combat aircraft where we have tried to be very clear that this is a very serious program. There's several billion dollars in the five-year plan for it, talking about inventories and surely significant numbers. And in that case, industry has responded. I've been briefed on a number of things that's been done. And it's kind of across a range in this case, because this is such a new concept. You've got people that are entry-level new companies that are interested in it. 
as well as some of the more established primes. So that that one in particular has has made a difference. I think the same thing is true in space, where some of the disaggregated architectures we're pursuing, the distributed architectures, are going to be reality. And what we tried to do through the operational imperatives and through the things we funded in the FIDIP is making clear which things we're serious about and we intend to take to fielding, as opposed to we're just doing an experiment with to see, to see how it'll come out. I'm trying to focus our entire acquisition part of our enterprise on an effective pipeline of field of capability. It gave guidance very early on that programs should be structured to field meaningful operational capability as quickly as possible, meaningful military capability, not just one or two experimental prototypes. We've had a lot of programs in the past that I think have basically been dead ends. And once industry figures that out, they're not as interested in investing in those areas. So we try to be as clear as possible about uh, what we need and where we're trying to go. And we'll continue to do that. Are you getting feedback from industry about what they'd like to see from the Air Force, whether in terms of guidance or new focuses? I think it's largely been just what I just said. Stability and funding is one thing, of course, right? That helps a lot. But as clear as we can be about our intent. And one of the things I've asked industry to do is to help us solve operational problems. That's sort of a new thing for industry. It's a traditional thing from the Cold War era. Uh, But in more modern times, industry has tended to wait for RFPs to come out waited for government to define requirements and then to invest as a result. I I want industry to be more proactive on that. So I don't think we're as far along in that path as we'd like to be or as I'd like to be, Uh, but we're making progress there as well, I think. Let me take you to the two extraordinarily novel approaches, uh, and it's maybe because I've been writing about this for a very long time, and you and I have been discussing this for a long time. The decision to award the blended wing body, I don't want to get into that because it's already been discussed, but the notion of giving it to Jet Zero, a small, innovative company, and then having them effectively be the prime and then be backed by industrial muscle that comes from the form of Northrop Grumman uh, and RTX and other participants is game-changing. Replicator, which Deputy Defense Secretary Hicks announced last week uh, or week before last at the ETI at the Emerging Technologies Institute conference, was also another thing where we want to build vast quantities of systems, unmanned systems, and can we have almost like a World War II consolidated design set, but Ford then builds it or helps productionize it. Um, I'm reading a little bit into it, but that's kind of the idea. Where else do you want to apply this model? because you have munitions shortfalls, you have capability shortfalls, you have platform shortfalls, and you need volume production in a shorter period of time. It's not necessarily a World War II mobilization, but it's pretty darn close if you're going to deter a country that thinks that you know we're giving everything to Ukraine and, and draining our inventories. Where do you want to apply these sort of novel methods where somebody smart like Hartnett Industries is the one who should be heading it, or Kendall Industries, and then having the industrial muscle, whether it's General Motors or whoever it is, actually builds it because modern manufacturing allows you to start doing those kinds of things. I think you need two basic things there. You need a product that can be built quickly. So how you write your requirements and what you're buying matters a lot. You need some certainty for industry that you're actually going to field in quantities that make it interesting enough to invest. Um, I think with Replicator, that's exactly what the deputy is doing. I'm very supportive of what she's done there. And I have already talked to her about this and told her that we have a number of candidates for that program. And we're ready to move forward on it as soon as we can make decisions. Um, I don't know where the other services are. I haven't had a chance to talk to the other military departments. So I think that's an example of the kind of thing we can do. But the key to success will be simplicity of the product so that it's not a highly complex design. 
Uh, you can use existing components in some cases and bring in complexity that way. But if you're going to do new cutting-edge designs and introduce complexity in that sense, you're introducing risk, and it's much harder to do the time frame she's talked about. So we have some ideas about uh, and some proposals that we think meet the, meet the model that she's described. And the blender wing body is a good example of something that where the innovation in this case came from a small startup who didn't have the depth or the capacity to go ahead and prepare for what might lead to a production program, right? So that kind of teaming, and I've seen it done before. I've done it myself in the past, uh, working with smaller businesses and, and major primes who had that increased capacity. Again, what we need to do is put out incentives to innovation, have a way to identify the innovation, and then encourage the, the kind of teaming that can happen. One of the things that people have missed as we've reached out to, I think, startups in particular and Silicon Valley and places like that, is that most of those kinds of technologies are going to come in through a major prime and be integrated and embedded into a larger platform than the small business is going to build for you. Uh, the blended wing body is a variant of that, basically a variation on that. So what we need to do is create those opportunities for people. Again, make it clear that we are seriously interested in innovation and make the business case for both the primes and the smaller businesses uh, as compelling and attractive as possible. Is the experience and seeing what the Ukrainians are doing, is that a catalyst in terms of how they're being able to operationalize ideas in a nationally distributed way and distribute production that happens all over the country? I mean, they're generating an enormous amount of capacity just within their own borders. Um, I haven't looked closely at how Ukraine's doing that exactly, but necessity is a very powerful motivator. And having your country under attack clears away an awful lot of let me say the underbrush, it gets in our way in terms of moving fast, and that's what's happened in Ukraine. It's been very impressive what they've been able to do. And I think we, we need to learn from that and try to adopt a similar model where it does apply. Uh, some of what they're doing, as you described it, is driven by the fact that they're under attack. And they can't concentrate things in single large targets that are easily detectable and then attacked. So they're doing it because they need to and they have to. But that model can have applicability beyond beyond the environment that they're working in. We can't have an interview like this without asking about next generation air dominance. Uh, everything in that program is top secret or above. We were able to find out independently that there had been three demonstrators and a cut down to two finalists. But the Navy has actually been a little more open about their version of that program. When can we expect to hear who the competitors are, what the production schedule looks like, any more information uh, about that program? I can't give you any more today, I'm afraid. I'm pretty happy with the way Dale White has organized that effort, uh, General White. The uncrewed collaborative combat aircraft is a part of that integrated family of systems, and that's moving forward. The next generation of dominance platforms are moving forward. I'm encouraged by the progress we've been making. We're not ready to say much more about it publicly, I'm afraid. Uh, and I really, I'm sorry, I can't give you a date at which we'll be able to do that. We find virtue in giving our, our potential competitors problems that they that they lack information about. Uh, that has a virtue for us, and I don't think we're going to walk away from that. And when you see the Navy willing to say at least who their competitors are for their program, does that influence any thinking about NGOT? Um, not particularly. Um, I'm not criticizing the Navy. I mean, they're doing what they're doing for, for their own good reasons, I'm sure. Uh, we're going to try to manage our flow of information to uh, achieve our security objectives. Let me ask you a broader long-term budget question and maybe end it uh, on that. Ukraine is demonstrating the need, as, as you've argued, right? The next war might not be short and sharp. 
deterrence might fail, in which case you have to fight, and your enemy knows how to count. Uh, they can make estimates on what our arsenal is like and what capabilities we have. And as Bob uh, Work used to always talk about, you know, outsticking the enemy. At this point, the enemy is really outsticking us in, in many respects. And unfortunately, even with the amount of money the Department of the Air Force is spending, it still does not have the resources it needs for the capacity and as well in some capability areas which you're working. But scale matters in this. How much more money, how much more resources and people do we need to plan for to actually do this at the scale and speed of relevance? We're buying new tankers at 14 a year. We have hundreds of airplanes that need replacing. We now need a new transport plane that will need trans-Pacific capabilities. How do we need to be looking at resources? Because it's cheaper to be spending on that kind of deterrence than it is to fight a war. And I think occasionally in Washington, we tend to forget that. I'm comfortable with the amount of resources we've been able to put in our budget for the last two years since I arrived. Uh, we ended up with a lot more than we started with through that process, and we've been able to apply that well. I'm comfortable with where we are and uh, the request we put up for 24. And at this point in the process for 25, uh, it's going to be stressful, uh, but we've still got a ways to go on that. Um, the main thing for me right now is, is getting started on some of the new starts that we need to get going with. There will be a demand for increased resources as we get further out and get into production and so on. And I would like to have more resources now as any service chief or, or service secretary, I think at any time in history ever has always wanted. But I feel that we can do our missions with the resources that we have and that we can effectively deter China and, if necessary, prevail against them. I think that's at risk. I, I don't think we can be complacent. The reason I put out that letter today is that we need to do some things to put ourselves in a better posture. We need to do them as quickly as we can. So I'm comfortable, again, with the resources we have right now. I am worried about the out years as we get further out. Um, but those are decisions that are yet to come. Does working with allies and partners help bridge that gap and get you more for your money at the end of the day? It can, and we need to do more of that. When uh, General Brown talks about integrated by design, he's, he's basically alluding to that, that we need to work with our allies. They have a lot of capability. When you add up all our GDPs together, um, it's very formidable. The U.S. does not fight alone, and it doesn't prepare for, for conflict or to deter alone. Integrated deterrence is really all about that. Um, so, yes, I think we can take better advantage of our allies. We need to share technology with them and vice versa uh, and involve them more earlier in our program in our program planning, and we're trying to do that. Does Buy American rhetoric in Washington complicate that? It does a little bit, actually, but I think um, the balance of payments that we have, the balance of trade we have in the aerospace industry and in defense is very positive for the United States, and our partners have a lot of capability. It's a two-way street, and they continue to buy our products uh, because they share in those products. So uh, it can be a barrier, but it doesn't have to be. I think if we're enlightened about this and thoughtful about it, we'll realize that having capability that we that collectively uh, makes us makes us all stronger. Secretary of the Air Force Frank Kendall, you were our first guest when we started this program. We are delighted to have you back. Please join us anytime. Thank you. Great to be with you both. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.